Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of Ink Stained Wretches, where we are going to give you some of 2022's best hits from this podcast because Chris and I are both overstuffed uh, on this Friday. And we will be back with you next week to talk all of the best and worst media news. Please enjoy. Break up my rants. Yes. Oh, let's do your obsession. Yes. And back to me for my other CNN obsession. Oh, you have a separate CNN obsession? Yeah, that wasn't my obsession. It goes deep, yeah. America. It goes deep. But it, it's not about Chris Licht. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Chris did not licked the State of the Union address. I hate, I don't hate very many things, but I hate the institution of the State of the Union Address. I hate it. It is un-American. It is wrong. It is stupid. And it is useless. But here's how it gets covered. The president's message is going to be critically important. And you're right. I think just a few months ago, officials viewed this speech happening in just a few hours as the perfect place for the president to launch a domestic reset. They hope that Mr. Biden's State of the Union address might serve as a pivot point coming at the convergence of three major events that could reorder the existing political landscape. A State of the Union address is a speech like no other. So it's not important. It's not crucial. It doesn't do anything. It is a pseudo event expressly. Now for me to give uh, to bore you with history. Washington and Adams, George Washington and John Adams, gave their states of the union. The Constitution requires that the president every year make an accounting to Congress of the state of the union. Washington and Adams delivered it as a speech. And then Thomas Jefferson, who is always, it's like he's he's your annoying friend who's like right so often and you really agree with him. And then he's wrong so often and you really disagree with him. Thomas Jefferson was right when he stopped doing that because he thought it was inappropriate. And it is inappropriate in the American system to have the president go to Congress and tell them what to do, to go stand in the highest position in their institution and then lecture Congress about what Congress ought to do. So they, so Jefferson submitted his in writing. They stayed in writing for, I believe, and you can check me on this, but I believe until America's worst or second worst president uh, Woodrow Wilson took office, and he wanted to lecture his fellow. His fellow Virginian Jefferson had taken it away. He put it back and went down to go scold and lecture Congress. So his successors, in, uh, in, I always think like how uh, uncomfortable this must have been for Calvin Coolidge, but his successors kept doing it. And there were, I think Coolidge may have sent some by letter. I don't know. I'll look it up later. But it persisted through Eisenhower and Kennedy as a daytime thing with a nice lunch. Wouldn't you like to see the Jello salad that Dwight Eisenhower ate? Like what kind of with the food that was offered, all served with steaming hot black coffee at the United States, sir, the honorary luncheon after the president gives his daytime remarks about the State of the Union, uh, has lunch with the leaders, and then heads back down Pennsylvania Avenue. I could live with that. Right. I could live with that. 
But in 1964, Lyndon Johnson, another bottom of the barrel, a, a, a bottom of the barrel American president, needed a way to confer legitimacy on his presidency because he had was an accidental president. It had been November of just November of the year before. Now he's running for re-election. He's running as an incumbent, but he wants the trappings and majesty and visibility that an inaugural address gets you, right? He wanted that. So he turned the 19th, in 1964, they changed the character and nature of the State of the Union to a primetime television event instead of an actual speech. Joe Biden's speech was terrible because the State of the Union as a concept of a speech is terrible. It's a laundry list of dumb stuff that you have to say that is, a, I, you know, their control X, control, control V speeches. All of the cabinet departments send their stuff in and then the president has to go through. And we will also take care of the narwhals in Alaska, uh, the slight narwhal applause. And you go through this, the, the narwhal, big narwhal applauds, but you go through this boring, terrible speech and then. Afterwards, and I, I this is the first year I didn't have to do it, or the, the one of the first times I didn't, haven't had to do it in years, where you then get on, you're like, Chris, what do you think? Oh, my gosh. I was going to say, my husband last night was like, so do we have to watch the State of the Union? Because I'm on maternity leave. And I was like, no. No. And, free. and we freaking went to sleep. So nice. I went upstairs like around nine and I did turn it on and I, you know, watched a little bit of it, but I did not like stay awake to watch all the commentary and da 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 da. And it was great because, as you said, it doesn't freaking matter. But, Chris, I don't think the rest of the news media shares your, our point of view on this. Well, should, do, we, should we hit it? Do you, do you know why? Because do you know what television loves? Schedulable events. I was going to say, like, predictable drama. Yep. Pseudo events. The amount of effort, if you give, and I, I have worked with some incredible logistics people. Shout out to Jamie Nelson, Sherry Gretsch at Fox, Anita Siegfried, Move Mountains, right? They're like, oh, how many bathrooms are we going to need? You weren't mentioned by Chris, and you think you should have been mentioned. Please email, email us at, at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com <laughs> and tell us how aggrieved you are and what an a-hole he is. I do look forward to it. Yeah. It's an amazing thing to see. How many how many bathrooms, how many dressing rooms, like doing events in weird places around the country or for the, for inaugurations. It's amazing. If you gave them time, they'll build whole sets, right? Do you remember the Fox Box? No. For campaign, I think it was 2008. The Fox Box was a mobile studio that folded up and then go to New Hampshire, go to Iowa, go to South Carolina, Bloop, like the sides fell down. It was it was super cool and it was and it was awesome. Anyway, not important. The important part is events like these get excessive coverage because they are scheduled and knowable things. It's like, why do we cover stupid congressional hearings where nothing is ever said or done? And that's why poll numbers too. They're like a concrete thing. But I like all the people who play along with it. Should we play our 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 little montage. We already did. Oh, we did. Yep. This is why, you know, guys, but like we call it, what do you call it? 
breaking the, the third wall or whatever. The fourth wall. The fourth wall. Oh, my gosh. So we don't actually hear the clips. You know, we, we choose them, and then we say, okay, play the clip, but it's just silence here in the studio, so I have no idea. What You're all right. The, 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 uh, the, they'll, love, they'll love you anyway. But this is, this is a problem, and I don't like it. I don't like the State of the Union as an institution. I don't like it as the coverage of it. And I say, fie, fie upon the State of the Union. On the eve of the January 6th hearings, I have an obsession with the left-wing domestic terrorists who... I didn't even know about this. Yes, who are getting a total pass from the Biden administration, kid glove treatment, and... Their stories have been covered in the mainstream, but if the press was worth its salt, this would be covered as the Biden administration's total, complete, and absolute hypocrisy. Who are these people? I'll get to it. When it talks about its uh, concern for violence directed at the country's democratic institutions and about domestic terrorism, these are, this is the case of two privileged lawyers, uh, one a graduate of Princeton University and NYU Law School, the other a graduate of Fordham undergrad and law school, who in the George Floyd protests handed out Molotov cocktails to the crowd and firebombed a empty police car. And one of these people threw a firebomb and destroyed a police car. Correct. And they were caught on tape in before doing it, they were caught. One of them was caught on tape. Let me pull up the quote. She said, it's a man and a woman. She gave a video interview declaring, this S won't ever stop until we effing take it all down, adding that the only way the police hear us is through violence. An officer of the court. Yeah. So under the Trump administration, the lawyers reached a plea deal where they pleaded to a count that would have carried a 10-year maximum sentence, and the prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York were pressing for the 10-year And this is after maximum. they dropped a bunch of charges They dropped them, right? six of the seven charges. They reached this plea deal, and they were pushing the court to adopt a so-called terrorism enhancement. They were saying it, like, turbocharges the prosecution, and but they were saying you, th- these people should be tried as terrorists. And They're they're self-described. She's a self-described terrorist. And the U.S. Probation Office agreed with this charge. So fast forward to Joe Biden coming into office and Merrick Garland taking over as AG. And there is a new U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York, but these same career prosecutors working on the case. And those same career prosecutors do something extremely rare, which is they allow these two lawyers to withdraw the plea deal that they reached with the Trump under the Trump administration and enter a new plea on a lesser charge. And that charge carries not a 10 year maximum, but a five year maximum. They drop the terrorism enhancement. Not only that, they're asking the court to sentence the two lawyers. The plea went through the plea. The plea went so through. So they had already pleaded they guilty. already pleaded. I see that your reporter at the charge. Beacon contacted my friend James Trusty. Yes. The great, I love James Trusty. So uh, we'll link our Beacon editorial on this, but not only that, so they withdrew the plea. That's very rare. 
and allowed them to plead to a lesser charge that carries a five-year maximum. Not only that, they're asking the judge to sentence them below the sentencing guidelines. So they want these uh, lawyers to go away for 18 months. So I covered I covered federal court for some time. To say that it would amazing. be to say that it would be unusual for prosecutors to revoke a plea that had already been accepted, that had already been proffered by a defendant and accepted by the court. I certainly never saw it. That's crazy. It's an amazing story, and it absolutely showcases the Biden administration's hypocrisy and the grossly political way that, like, they're that they're handling. I also the wonder about the favoritism given their their elite the, the, oh, their status all as the elites. Talk about, all yeah. the talk about you know the two systems of justice that the left professes to talk about the the, the woman in this case she. Uh, the an Obama administration Intel official guaranteed her 250k bail. They have been treated with kid gloves all the way through because of their status as elite. With everybody attesting to the fact that they had no prior record, et cetera, et cetera. It's everything the left professes to uh, hate about the criminal justice system is on display in this case. Wowzers! Let's start at the beginning with this delicious. Washington Post meltdown. Chris will not agree with my characterization, but Felicia Sanmez has broken out of the ink-stained wretches loony bin. It's your loony bin. To, it's not my loony bin. I do not associate myself with that term. To terrorize her colleagues. So the last time we checked in with her, Felicia, who I just want to get her title right, I believe she's a national reporter for the Washington Post, uh, Washington Post national political reporter for the Washington Post was suing the Washington Post for gender discrimination after it barred her from covering sexual assault. Now, that lawsuit was tossed out of court. Uh, the judge said news media companies, and I'm quoting from the Post story about this, have the right to adopt policies that protect not only the fact, but also the appearance of impartiality. And he compared the editor's decision to hypotheticals like keeping a reporter who had spoken out about the personal impact of a relative's murder from covering stories about violent crime or a reporter who had just campaigned for a political party from covering elections. So she spoke out about being she, a victim of sexual yep. assault and they prevented her from covering the Kavanaugh confirmation. And she threw a fit online, which is like basically, you know, a Tuesday for her. And she she sued them, and she her accusation was her accusation against a coworker or was it the oh it was like every editor at the Post Steve Ginsburg Matea Gold you know Marty Baron she was going after all of them tagging them in tweets naming them all in the lawsuit you know she's off her GD rocker all right all right well she does I will say this I know that I think she has said publicly that she has struggled. With mental health issues and... Obviously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. All right. So this week... So what happened? Fast forward to this week. And Dave Weigel, another reporter at who, the Post... T- tell, tell people who Dave Weigel is. I am going to tell okay. them. He's another reporter at the Post. Let's grab his, his title. He wrote a 600-page book. He covers he, politics for the Post. Dave Weigel wrote the authoritative book on progressive rock at like 600 and whatever pages. So if you ever wondered 
on Close to the Edge. What was the backstory behind Yes's Close to the Edge? You you can go to Dave Weigel's book. Dave is politically focused. He is has an eccentric kind of beat and is terrible at Twitter. He he's, sucks at Twitter. What did he tweet? Okay. He, I mean, it was sort of funny, but oh. so, so he retweeted uh, a tweet from somebody who I'd never heard of who said, all women are bi. The question is whether it's sexual or polar. Blech. And he retweet he retweeted it. it. Now, here's the thing. It is definitely sexist. But my, sure. compl- my complaint with it is not it's sexism. It's lame. It's, it's lame. a dumb, lame it's joke. It's lame. Right? This is not a funny make-me-a-sandwich-oriented kind of joke. This is a What's lame- make-me-a-sandwich? And women have, have taken this over about, so there's the old, like, shut up and make me a sandwich. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this isn't oh, even like- Oh, that's funny because on Summer House, which is my I, this Bravo show that what, I love. What terrible television show is this? This amazing Bravo show about these people who go to the Hamptons. <laughs> One of the chicks, uh, the guy, like, asks her to make him a sandwich- we is this should, like we'll, we'll Jersey this Shore? Clip. Is this like no, Jersey Shore? No, no, it's like these people from New York who go to the Hamptons, but the girl has a meltdown and she's like, and how many sandwiches have you made me? <laughs> Maybe she's going to work at the Washington Post. But anyway, dumb tweet. Okay. Felicia's response was not quite dumb tweet. She had a complete meltdown. And Dave's response was deleting his tweet. And apologizing, but that was not enough for Felicia. She starts tagging all her bosses and asking whether the newsroom is going to tolerate this behavior. And tagging her bosses is like a total power play. Like, are you going to do something? Showing she's really in charge. Anyhow, they they suspend Dave Weigel. Yep. For do we know for month, how long? One, one month? One month without pay. Dag nabbit. One month without pay. We are linking that story. That is a... Dag nabbit. That's a, I mean. One month without pay. I know, I don't know what he makes, but I know what, I know what reporter salaries are like. Uh, A month without pay, uh, they're going to hurt. Okay. So you would think that is where the story ends, but in fact, that is where our story begins. (laughs) That is where our story begins because, well, you know, Chris, in the past when we've talked about by Felicia, we have said like, it's amazing how people just watch her bully and throw her weight around somebody actually did speak up and fight back jose del real who is is a washington post reporter he's also on the national desk i think he's watching this go down he's a reporter and features writer at the post he took to twitter and this is all playing out publicly on twitter so he takes to twitter and starts fighting back against and, Felicia and, 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 and I, speaking up for Dave. And I think that the context, well, not really speaking up for Dave, but the, but attacking Felicia. The the context here is we've talked about it with Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times. We've talked about it with other outlets and other things. There is a trend, and I don't know how old a person Felicia Sanmez is, but there is a a thing that has happened. And it's not just in the news business, it's at Netflix, it's at everywhere, which is instead of working through the system internally, and then ultimately as a last resort, if you cannot get a solution internally, that you then take your complaints public, they go, and I assume Sanmez, how quickly did Sanmez respond to Weigel? Was it right away? 
right away in real like, time. Yeah, before he could delete the tweet. Yes, he deleted it. I think because she, because she started throwing a hissy fit. So that the, what's inappropriate here, of course, and fundamentally inappropriate, is that they are coworkers, and as a consequence, if she sought a remedy professionally for this that she should have alerted her boss and their boss and talk about it that way. She had a problem, not take it to Twitter. So this is this is a problem, not just in the news business, but it particularly afflicts the news business where people are glued to their Twitters. All right, so Jose decides to tell Felicia to knock it out. And with that, Chris, we have a freaking epic treat for our listeners this week. Colin. Welcome to Wretches Theater for a dramatic reading of the Twitter fight between Felicia Sanmez and Jose Del Riel. At J Del Riel. Felicia, we all mess up from time to time. Engaging in repeated and targeted public harassment of a colleague is neither a good look nor is it a particularly effective. It turns the language of inclusivity into clout chasing and bullying. I don't think this is appropriate. At J Del Riel. Dave's retweet is terrible and unacceptable, but rallying the internet to attack him for a mistake he made doesn't actually solve anything. We all mess up in some way or another. There is such a thing as challenging with compassion. At Felicia Sanmez. Jose, Dave's retweet was indeed terrible and unacceptable. It was also public, and it's important that all those who saw Dave's tweet also see Washington Post reporters standing up for our newspaper's values, one of which is that comments denigrating women will not be tolerated. At Felicia Sanmez, you may view it as a simple matter of someone, quote, messing up, unquote. I view it differently. My timeline this past day has been full of women, reporters, readers, sources, wondering whether this means they can't trust the Post to report on them and for them. At J. Del Riel. Blocks at Felicia Sanmez. At Felicia Sanmez. So far, I've received no apology from my colleague for baselessly accusing me of engaging in quote, bullying, unquote, quote, harassment, unquote, and quote, cruelty, unquote, just for objecting to a sexist tweet. I did, however, receive an email from him accusing me of fostering a quote, toxic workplace, unquote, and now this... A very normal, inclusive, respectful, and healthy work environment for women, exclamation point. At J. Del Real deactivates account. At J. Del Real reactivates account. At J. Del Real. Last night, I came under an unrelenting series of attacks intended to tarnish my professional and personal reputation. The cause? Some tweets I sent calling for compassion within our workplace. Those attacks continued this morning. At J. Del Real, in hopes of de-escalating, I temporarily deactivated my account amid a barrage of online abuse directed by one person, but carried out by an eager mob. The one-sided attacks continued even after I stopped engaging. I know the old adage, hurt people hurt people. What then? At J. Del Real, I will just say that I am proud to be part of a workplace where contrary to the impression created on this forum, Many people are actively engaged in the work of dismantling systems of sexism, racism, and homophobia. Sometimes that work is loud, and sometimes it's quiet. 
at Jay Del Riel. As the only Mexican-American reporter on the national desk, I know the sting of discriminatory systems firsthand. Anyone who wants you to believe they alone are trying to fix it is doing a disservice to the amazing team effort unfolding, of which I am proud to be a part. It will not surprise you, Eliana Johnson, to know that that's my favorite thing we've ever done. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. I think we have uh, you, Chris, you. I I do not have a future in acting, but you, you pure might. Ham. It's pure ham over here. Okay. Pure ham. Okay. So, that is still not the end of it. It never ends. Sally Busby is the new boss over at the Washington Post, and she is watching her minions over there, like, duke it out like this Duke it out with Twitter. With, with reporters from other outlets other. chiming in, totally. goading them on, blah, but, blah, 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 blah. But basically with each other, and we're recording on Wednesday morning. Correct. Wednesday, June the 8th. 8th of June. So I have here an email from Sally Busby sent to Washington Post staff dated Tuesday, June 7th, 4.18 p.m., and here we have a Dear Colleagues memo, okay, sent from Sally Busby. Dear colleagues, in this newsroom, we share many important common values. Aww. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, we'll get to the good part. So today, in the strongest terms, I want to reiterate the importance of the following policies which we will enforce. We do not tolerate colleagues attacking colleagues, either face-to-face or online. Respect for others is critical to any workplace, basically, including our newsroom. The newsroom social media policy points specifically to the need for collegiality. We also do not tolerate violations of our policy prohibiting workplace harassment and our policy on prohibition of discrimination, which further set forth our expectations for employees and are designed to create an inclusive environment for all po- so all post-employees can perform their best work, yada, yada, to be clear. We will enforce our policies and standards. Basically, that's her memo. With a lot of filler, such as the combination of shared values and diversity of viewpoints is our greatest strength, which obviously it is not, Sally. So she says, don't don't tweet sexist jokes, but but also don't attack your colleague publicly. uh, Don't, but if you do, you know, we'll suspend you if you tweet the sexist joke and... If you attack your colleagues publicly, you know, we'll probably look the other way because Felicia is still tweeting. Is she really? She's still tweeting. So, so what's let our me go current, to her. What's this our, is this is this the, is where we the San Mesometer. Okay, this is where we leave it. So the, the San the San Mesometer. This memo goes out at four eighteen yesterday. Okay, and she, the Busby memo says the news. The newsroom social media policy points specifically to the need for collegiality. So Sanmez, like, you know, 10 minutes after this goes out, screen grabs Jose Del, Re- Del Real blocking her and writes, so I hear the Washington Post is a collegial workplace. Oh, boy. And then says, puts all his tweets in screen grabs, the ones that we read dramatically, and says, these tweets falsely accusing me of clout chasing, bullying, cruelty, and directing an eager mob to carry out a barrage of online abuse are still up, even after I repeatedly raised them to management and noted that I've been receiving threats and abuse. Collegial! Exclamation point. And then one of her colleagues replies, please stop. 
And she responds, please stop, dot, 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 requesting the tweets from a colleague, falsely accusing me of bullying and clout chasing be taken down. So she is like goading management. Well, I was I was going to say, it sounds to me like a person who wants to get fired. Totally. Right? Like she is daring them to fire she her. Is. And she knows they don't so want to fire her. the question to me is. Well, but, but so if I were Sally Busby, I would say to Felicia Sanmez, Felicia, here's the deal. We want you to cover Loudoun County schools. We want you to cut co- we want you to cover Fredericksburg City Council. Here's your new beat, no cut in pay. Your lawsuit for getting to choose your own beat has already been thrown out of court. We want you to head down to Fredericksburg, take your laptop and see you later. And and let her keep tweeting and and maroon her out there until she gets tired of it and quits. Cuz if you fire her, then you make a martyr out of her. I would grind her down until she... That is so not what I would do. You say make a martyr out of her. Chris, I would make an example out of her, which is, like, we say we don't tolerate this, and you know what, Sally, I'm new. I'm, I'm Sally. I'm new in the job. We say we don't tolerate this. Dave, we don't tolerate this. And you know what, Felicia, we also don't tolerate this. You're out. You're out, girlfriend. You're I, out. I, I think she would be a hero to her followers. Uh, and I would. Great. I, she can be like a hero to all the freaking mental <laughs> cases online. That's great. I, I, I She's w- a hero to them regardless. I would exile her, not fire her. And the message would be clear to other reporters that if you. And by the way, if I were the, if I were the executive editor of The Washington Post, I would say something else. Stop tweeting. Stop tweeting. The the can you imagine yeah, how many but... hours how many hours did these goofuses spend on this this week? I mean, it's a freaking twenty preschool. hours. She runs a preschool. Twenty hours, thirty. We didn't hours. even I don't... get to uh, all the post reporters tweeting in like in succession last night. How they're so proud to work. This is such a collegial workplace and it's not perfect. So they all start like echoing each other about what a wonderful workplace it is. And a little bit like a Trump cabinet meeting. Yeah. So like (laughs) it was, it was. And so a little birdie told me that they're trying to goad her to attack them and violate this policy. Oh my gosh. So that they can go to management and say, okay, here clearly she's violating the policy as if she's not already in violation of it, and they're, like, trying to get her fired, basically. If anybody out there is listening. So the question is, Sally Busby, in my view. Yes. Don't nobody attach Chris to me. Like, do you have the cojones to do it? If there are any billionaires listening, Eliana and I will start a newspaper. We will start a, a, a news outlet, and one of the first rules will be for all reporters – Deactivate your Twitter account. You may not. You may not tweet. What, would you be on board with that if we can get staked? Totally. Okay. No. No tweet. No, totally. T- yes. All right. Okay. Good. But it would really be like you know how kids used to get sent off to like. Well, there still is Cotillion and all these manners. I did schools. Cotillion. My son. Yeah. Cotillion. That's what it basically. Not being on Twitter is would be the equivalent of that for kids these days. No TikTok. No Twitter. And, and and also, act right, right? Have you ever heard of act right? It's what your mom gives you when she hits you on the back of the head. She gave you a little bit of act right. Ah, and she's just, I need some water after all that. She smacks you on the back of the head and gives you a little act right. 
these kids need some act right. So obvious. There's only one item taking up the entire front page. It's basically like, you know, Trump and Mar-a-Lago raid. They just bought out an ad that got our whole front page. Chris, I I have to say I broke this down. You know, we have a little document that we used to prep the show. I broke down coverage of the raid into the left colon and the right colon. And my view is that the, the coverage was so stupid and it continues to be so stupid. But basically, no one knows anything about this raid. And the left's response was just there were two responses. One was like, thou shalt not question the integrity of law enforcement. And the second was, you know, this is finally the thing that's going to land Trump behind bars. And the right's response was, we live in a third world country now. This is a banana republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a different well, f- well, first, I want, for, sense of where first, we land? I want to hear the amazing montage put together by nutrient-dense Colin Chicola. Let's take a <laughs> listen. We don't know where this will lead in legal terms. We don't know where this will lead in historic terms. We do not know where this will lead in terms of the behavior of the former president and his supporters. And that is a moment that is worth appreciating um, in terms of us being at a historical nexus. But if I'm if I were like Donald Trump's lawyer right now, and thank God I'm not, um, I would be advising my client to be telling my family I am looking at jail time and we should you know, make plans accordingly. Watching uh, the criticisms of the right when it comes to investigations on the left, there's a there's a benefit of the doubt that they give to law enforcement and this idea of law and order. that They don't give to themselves when they're under scrutiny. So all of a sudden it's political. But if it's a Democrat in the hot seat, it's about law and order. All of these excuses, Scott, coming from Republicans and they're shifting, they're evolving. They don't stand up to simple questioning. Yeah, I mean, some of these excuses are just patently ridiculous. And we've seen this during the Trump years, you know, the shifting, you know, attempts to defend him at all costs. It's the die on every hill syndrome. You know, the problem with dying on every hill is that you wind up dead. <laughs> See, that's what all that extra nutrients do. That's that is how having a nutrient rich diet makes you a better producer. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. I will say this. The long lesson of the Trump administration for the press, one of the many long lessons, but I think a very significant one, the coverage of the Russia probe, the Mueller investigation, the coverage of the relating to his first impeachment, all of those things. Democrats and some Republicans, but mostly Democrats, fed a steady diet of leaks to the press. I'm looking at you, Adam Schiff, but fed a steady diet of leaks to the press. By the time things were done, the way the way I put it, and it's this is much like with the Clinton impeachment. If everything that was known at the end, right, had been known in one fell swoop at the beginning, it would have been huge. But because it dribbed and drabbed out and because it was just a little drizzling of scandal over a long period of time, by the time you get to the point where there is the aha, it feels like less than that. And I want to say that this Justice Department seems less leaky than its two priors. And it seems like there is more discipline, certainly, than there was. Barr was okay, but the Trump administration was leaky itself. And the Obama, I mean, look, 
the the good news the good news for for Merrick Garland is that the standard set in the in the analogous time with Loretta Lynch and James Comey was so heinously bad was so was so a mix of arrogance and incompetence the likes of which one seldom sees it in high office that they've got a little advantage but I do sense a different approach here both from the Justice Department and from some Democrats around to not be as leaky this time around and there is a little more patience and I do think that's a different energy couple thoughts one is on the raid itself and the media coverage, you know, I'm struck by how little we actually know and that there was like real room for coverage on that. Like I was looking around for questions that Mm -hmm. I have had about it and for answers to those questions and couldn't find it. What I was finding was here's how Republicans are reacting and here's how Republicans are fueling violence. And here's what like Giuliani is saying that we're a, you know, banana republic. I'm I'm really curious, actually, like how how does it work? Like if Trump did declassify these documents, like what is does a president have to go through a process to declassify documents? How does that work? Can he declassify everything? And then can a can his successor like actually say, no, we're reclassifying those things? Like there are a lot of questions I have about the substance of this that I could not find answers to in the press. And it just struck me that there's there's a lot that we don't know. And the media like filled this void with not with facts about this, but with like stupid yes. takes and asininity. <laughs> and on your there, there, thoughts about there's your, justice. There's your title of this episode. Stupid takes, stupid and, asininity. takes and asininity. I think, I think yeah. you already did it. Um, and it just strikes me that like we still don't know anything. So there's no room for takes like we we know nothing about this, really. Well, I I, I, uh, I operate in a space, you know, I've said many times before that I'm supposed to be the weatherman, right? Doing political analysis and political forecasting is supposed to be like, well, now we've talked about the news over to you, Hillbilly. What you know, what what's what is going to happen? And there's a little like a farmer's almanac component to this stuff because you're like, well, I don't know if the woolly worms turn hairy by the time it gets to be the fifth of October. Look out for a heavy winter because obviously political analysis includes a lot of guesswork and assumptions. But what very often happens, and I call this the politicoification of everything, when an event occurs, even before we get to the question of what happened. The question is, how will this affect the next election? And in this case, people don't even want to talk about the next election. They want to talk about the election after that. They want to talk about the rep- the primary season in two years. And certainly, you. and I'm not saying that it, it is, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the, the effects of this on the Republican electorate. It's a huge question because at a moment where it seemed like maybe they were starting to get a little post-Trump, this makes it very hard for Trump's opponents, right? Because if you're going after Trump, you're doing the, you know, you're doing the dirty work of China Joe Biden and his banana republic justice department if you're critical of Trump. So certainly it has its consequences. Hardest hit, Rhonda Sands. I'm not I'm not disputing that it's not a worthwhile subject of analysis, but I agree with you a hundred percent. On this stuff, we don't know. And we don't know what what this is about and what it fits into. And it's very hard 
in a news environment where you just eat, you eat like a cowboy, like we say, or I say, just one thing at a time. There's only one story at a time. So this is a story where it's like, okay, we should have some really in-depth coverage of it as it happens. And then there should be some deep dives to answer the kind of questions that you have. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll let you know when we know, instead of just keeping reporters standing around at Mar-a-Lago saying, what's another story that we could possibly tell about this? And the easiest one is always to say, how will this affect the next election? Can I probe you a little bit on your take about the leakiness of the Justice Department? I just want to play devil's advocate. I think, let's say it was obviously politically advantageous for the previous departments to, for, for let, let's say the FBI in, or for the Mueller team to be leaky. They were leaking things to their advantage. For this Justice Department, you know, they're saying nothing about their investigation of Hunter Biden. Like, what would they be leaking there to their advantage? It seems to me that that from the political political advantage standpoint, like they got to keep their mouths shut on that and say nothing. And then from the Trump investigation standpoint, unless like they really have something on Trump, what would they be leaking? So the Mueller leaking and whatever of it came from House Democrats and whatever of it came from inside Mueller's own team, I don't know, you know, some of it you can guess, some of it you can't, so I don't even, I don't bother, was to their terrible, terrible disadvantage. It hurt them enormously. It mitigated the ultimate report because contradictory leaking. I mean, look, we have the, <clears throat> we have the, why, why do you think we have the most them? effulgent example of this in the Steele dossier, pushing it out, leaking it out doesn't let the case mature and the, it it eliminates the element of the haha and here it is and here's our report that's got all this stuff in it but there was no aha so i think it accomplished what they wanted because they had this story you, for if, you know two three years of the trump presidency that like he's terrible they had the storyline that was all they needed there was no it, aha it ever didn't it didn't well i disagree with you about that but the the effect was to turn it from a big thing to just background noise that one thing goes into the other. The lesson that a lot of people took from the intense assault on Donald Trump and his presidency that took place while he was in power was that you can't kill him, right? (laughs) The guy... The guy is is unkillable because, of course, a lot of this is owed to Republicans standing with him, even when that even when in private they knew they shouldn't. And but that can also be part of the coverage problem because the what works best for Trump is to be a victim. Donald Trump is the the great avatar. He is the apotheosis of victim culture in America. And he and I've been so reminded in this response to the Clintons and how much the Trumps are like the Clintons in this stuff. Ethically dubious behavior, dog by scandal. And whose fault is it? It's the media. It's the vast right wing conspiracy. It's never us. Right. It's never us. It's these other bad people who are coming to get us. And, you know, it's been 20 years, more than 20 years that the Democrats have been dragging the Clintons and their garbage around. And I think the Republicans may be in for a very similar experience with the Trumps. All right, front page. We've got a Daily Beast story indicating that 
Chuck Todd, the longtime host of Meet the Press, maybe on the ropes at NBC, after his executive producer, John Reese, who has been the EP of the show for the last eight years, was sent over to the NBC News streaming service and they brought in a new executive producer. It's called NBC News Now. Oh, the, and this is, a, they have competing Peacock. streaming services with each other? streaming Always services. Smart. And they brought in, I thought this was interesting, they brought in someone from CNN who helped develop CNN Plus, uh, David Gellis, to run the Meet the Press Sunday show, which is down 21% in total viewership year over year. It says more than any of the Sunday politics shows. And then this is according to the Daily Beast. Gellis's first order of business, multiple sources said, is deciding what to do about Chuck Todd, who despite recently signing a two-year extension, has baffled many at NBC with how long he's remained atop the struggling show. They also indicate that White House correspondent Kristen Welker is being groomed to replace him. So, what, what Chris, a, what, a what is terrible, your take? What a terrible way that NBC treats people. Like, NBC, <laughs> the the amount of leaky, mean, and the, remember all the drama with the Today Show back in the day? And then you remember all the drama around David Gregory. Remember how terrible they were to David Gregory? I was going to say, this, really, this really brought back David Gregory vibes about, I feel like his, his departure from the show, it felt like a six-month story where it was like a drip, drip, drip oh, and thing they were, when and he was finally were... replaced by Chuck Todd. And then, yes, the Ann Curry drama at the Today Show was and they were painful. Br- so- here, here's the David Gregory. I'm looking up what year this was. David Gregory became the host in 2008 and was there till 2014. He succeeded Tim Russert. Right. And David Gregory had been the NBC News White House correspondent, uh, and he's very tall. And David Gregory got into the job, and he was not good at it, and especially because he was following Tim Russert, who, though the cult of Tim Russert sometimes is a little rich for me, he was really good at it. He was enjoyable. It was good TV and all that stuff. So David Gregory takes over, and they are awful to him. And at one point, somebody at NBC leaked a story about him that said that they were getting, like, a psychiatrist for, or, like, they were getting psychological help for him to have more confidence. Nothing nothing would really build your confidence up any more than reading in the news about how your boss thinks that you're so – such a tremulous mouse – They've had to hire somebody to coach you to be better. So they put in Chuck Todd, who, oh, maybe this is, here's a question yeah, for you. Yeah, I, I pulled up the story because I wanted to be able to about Gregory. bring that up. Yeah, NBC allegedly hired psychological consultant to evaluate Dave, David Gregory. Now, I thought at the time that Chuck Todd might have been one of the forces behind, or how about this, in a, in a cooey bono, like who's leaking, who's pushing. There was definitely a team Chuck Todd energy behind the effort to oust David Gregory. And Todd, I think, very unfairly, ended up being targeted by the American left as some sort of a capitulating sellout, not whatever. Did Chuck Todd work for Debbie Wasserman or something at some point? Do I have a recollection of that? I'm not aware of that. It doesn't did mean he ever have a job in politics? I thought maybe it he didn't had. happen. 
I, I just wanted to pull up. This is a mediaite story. Among those signs of concerns was the network's. This is a mediaite story. Was the network's decision to commission a quote psychological consultant to interview both Gregory and Gregory's friends and his wife. An NBC representative said the 2013 study was designed quote to get perspective and insight from people who know him best. In spite of the fact that Gregory has worked at NBC for two decades. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Chuck Todd, uh, Chuck Todd worked for Tom Harkin, Democrat of Iowa. But anyway, Chuck Todd really got... So there may be a hoisted on your own petard element here that after somebody was tortured as the host, only for you to replace them, that now he will be tortured, and then Kristen Welker can get the job, and then she can be tortured. But NBC's mean. It seems like a, a, a mean, unsupportive place to work from the outside. I don't know, but that's what it looks like. Well... To me, actually, I I have like a more macro view of this, which is like a Sunday show issue and how if you are the host of a Sunday show, those shows are just less relevant. And I actually think it's quite a challenging job for any of these people who are the hosts. So it says, well, you know, Meet the Press is down 20 percent. Like I I actually don't you know, we we do this for a living I don't find any of those shows to be much must-watch shows no, anymore. Certainly not. And I don't know how I would approach the job where I Chuck Todd or Margaret Brennan or George Stephanopoulos or Shannon Bream, who's taking it over at Fox, and make it a much wa- wa- a must-watch show. It just seems to me an enormous challenge because of the constant availability and flow of information. You don't have the convening power that yep. you used to have. That's exactly um, right. Do you have any thoughts on, like, whether should we still have these shows? Well, something's going to How do you make them more relevant? It seems to me, like, regardless of kind of the internal politics of NBC, that, like, this is just a challenge for it doesn't matter who you put in that seat. Like, that's going to be hard. Well, yes, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be whoever you would put in that job, uh, will face exactly the same challenges that Chuck Todd did right away. Uh, you know, at NBC, they tried to make Meet the Press their political brand across the spectrum, right? And they were going to, they had his daily show, which they canceled. I guess part of me with the story says, isn't this sort of the long march out for Chuck Todd? They took away his daily show, which he shouldn't have been doing anyway. He should have just done the focus on. Here, let me answer your question this way If you have a Sunday show, focus on making it truly truly, truly excellent. And networks should allow, whether it's Shannon Bream or whomever, the time to have a really, really excellent show, not just one that plugs in. And then people can rewatch it. They can record it. They can watch it later. They, you, I, I would, If I were hosting a Sunday show, my goal would be to be a DVR smash hit, right? That you would get people to record your show and that they'd want to watch it throughout the week and that it was something that they'd really want to have. I think what can make it better is making it different than most of the crap that is on television that passes for political debate and argumentation, that you could have it be really excellent and get great panelists. But as you say, it's never going to go back to the old days where it's like, can you believe they booked so-and-so? And people are like, yeah, I saw them on a Twitch stream earlier today. Yes, everybody's famous now. Everybody's on television all the time. So it doesn't have the convening power that it once did. But I think you still could just focus on making it a very, very excellent show. Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think there was like an overexposure problem where that show 
got to be everywhere all the time and a podcast here, there, everywhere. And I never really understood like how, how, how one person was able to do all of that. It's really, really challenging and exhausting. I have a real heart for, for somebody in the position that Chuck Todd is, which is you have all these people watching you rooting for you to fail, right? All uh, of these, so hard. all of these, the people on the left are rooting for him to fail. People on the right are enjoying his misery because they think that he's crooked the other direction and his competitors inside NBC. So I would say, you know, this is a tough spot to be in and it's like golf. The time where it's most important for you to be loose and cool when you address the ball is right after you've just humiliated yourself, right? The the time where you need poise and presence is right after you double bogeyed the previous hole, and that's when it's hardest to do. So I hope I hope I hope that he finds his groove and, and gets cool. Next up was probably the piece that I found most interesting this week, a New York Times report on the Washington Post business struggles. And I'll, I'm going to read a little bit from it, but I I liked it because for once we have the these the big papers covering each other. And so the Times writes about frustrations inside the Washington Post, which is losing money. And it's the focus is on Jeff Uh, Bezos, who bought the post from the Graham family, and on Fred Ryan, who is the CEO. Uh, He was the CEO of Politico, and he's now um, running the business side of the Washington Post. And this part amused me. So the Post, uh, in the post-Trump era, uh, has lost several, uh, has has lost many, many subscribers, and they're now no longer profitable. Um, But I loved this paragraph. Mr. Ryan's focus on productivity and office attendance in the newsroom has also been a source of tension. Uh, Yeah, what an unreasonable (laughs) lunatic. Um, He has expressed his belief to members of his own leadership team that there were numerous low performers in the newsroom who needed to be managed out. He has monitored how many staff members come into the office and has weighed new measures to compel people to return to work, including threats of firing several people at the Post said. And it goes on essentially to say that they are struggling to find their footing in the post-Trump era and to expand their coverage beyond politics, but have not been able to do so yet. And what struck me about this is... Chris, we've talked about how, like, it's just really difficult to make news profitable. And, like, what jumped out about me, to me, is, like, even Jeff Bezos cannot do this. Well, I don't I don't know what Jeff Bezos thinks the Washington Post is or what it's supposed to do. I can tell him right now, I know you're out there, Jeff B. I know you're listening closely. The effort to make the Washington Post profitable by what one media analyst called uh, optimizing for anger. And the post jumped right off a cliff in about 2018, 2017, and decided they were going to imitate the clickbaity, performative outrage, uh, low-quality outlets that were succeeding. They, 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 they leaned into the democracy dies in darkness stuff so hard that it became their brand, right? It became who they were in a way that the New York Times did not. The Times definitely, not not here to say that you couldn't perceive an, an angle in the New York Times coverage of politics in the past six years, but the Post really cheapened it and they really went too hard. And the point I would think of being as rich as Jeff Bezos, so that when you get divorced and you have to give your wife half your stuff, that you're still one of the richest people in the world, 
Uh, that's uh, that's if you're if you if you have that kind of dough, why would you want to own a paper that was pandering and crappy, right? And there's a lot of good journalism at the Post. There's a lot of great journalists at the Post, but why you don't need the clickbait stories and you don't need that stuff because you're rich and that's awesome. Fred Ryan, who was at Politico, right? Yeah, he he was the CEO of Politico, but Bezos bought the Post in 2013, so he bought it before you know pre-Trump era. Yeah, and and then was okay with, you know, the direction it took in the Trump era, yep. or or so we think, presumably because it was profitable. But my understanding is that he is part of the push to like you know steer this ship back in in the other direction. That is, you know, meeting resistance when the guy wants people to come in the office and has the radical idea that maybe low performers should be nudged out the door. But it is striking to me that like the richest guy in the world who has made money hand over fist is struggling to find a way to make news profitable. Well, he shouldn't, he shouldn't, he should lose He should be willing to lose money on it. And the reason, and you know, this, this I'm, story, I'm totally with you on that. I think like right now that is a way to do, to do good news and reporting. And, and this talks about how Bezos has become less interested in it and that they, th- these calls, trips, executives have declined in the number of that stuff. And, you know, the reason to buy the newspaper, if you're a rich guy, is to be influential in your city, to be part of your city, Right. I was talking to the great John Podoritz about this on the commentary podcast where we we celebrated you. We celebrated Rechtum, but peace be upon him, about how the, one of the problems at the Post is you have a absentee owner. You have this rich guy who buys it, but he, he's not a Washingtonian, and he doesn't think about Washington, and he doesn't care about the sports teams, and that's the kind of stuff that wouldn't matter to him. Whereas if, though I pointed out to him it could have been, could have been worse, could have been Dan Snyder, but the, like, Jeff Bezos should probably own the Seattle newspaper, not the, not the Washington. He should own the Washington, a newspaper in Washington state, not in the city of Washington, maybe. 